Well, good morning. Am I on? Did I turn it on? All right. Beautiful. All right. Well, as Rick was saying, my name is Nathan. My wife and I were here just a few months ago. I think towards the end of summer was when we were actually here and we went through uh, some light content. If you were around, we talked about critical race theory and social justice and some of those things in our presentation uh, called Encountering Our, our Culture. Um, and I've, you know, kind of established a relationship with Pastor John, and he's uh, welcomed me back today, so I'm happy to be here with you. Um, I am a, one of the assistant pastors over at Calvary Chapel, Southeast Portland, over in the Milwaukee area, and so that's where I came from this morning. But um, happy to be here with you as we dive in. If you would have told me this morning when I woke up and I was driving in that we were going to sing Chris Christopherson this morning, I never would have guessed it. <laughs> But I'm super happy that we did. It's a beautiful song. And I remember I was in my 20s when I learned that he was a musician and not just an actor. Because I tell myself that I'm not old yet. Um, and even though I'm starting to feel that way. Uh, it, so it was just kind of an exciting thing when I learned that there was a whole other dynamic to him. And that his music, so much of it was edifying to the Lord as well. And so... Well, we today are going to be in First Peter. So if you want to open up your Bibles, uh, we're going to go through and read a chunk. And then um, before I do that, I will pray and then we'll kind of get rolling through it. But we're going to be in First Peter chapter 4. And, you know, when you're giving a, a guest sermon or a, a, a message like this, it's always kind of a, a dilemma of how much do I want to break off? When you look at a, a chapter like First Peter 4, there's so many good things. And, you know, if, if we were doing a series and it was going to be multiple weeks, I could break it down and we can divide it up and everything. And, you know, when I looked at it, I, I finally decided we're going to do the whole darn chapter. Because there are so many good things and I think that we can we can skim through it pretty quickly and we'll be able to cover everything. So let me go ahead and pray and then we will start with uh, reading the scripture. So Father, we do again thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity we have now to open up your word, to study what it is that you have for us this morning. We know that so many of these books are familiar to us, Father. Uh, many of us have, have gone through the pages of the letters and, and we've studied and we've um, you know developed a, a, a pretty solid understanding of what it was that you wanted to say to us on the pages of your word. But Father, we know that each time we open it, there's something new for us for that day, for that time. So Father, right now I pray that as we are getting into this letter and as we read through things that are familiar, Father, I do pray that you speak to each one of us right here and right now what it is that you have us to know today the things that we can take away and apply to our lives this this morning, this afternoon, into the coming weeks, Father. We ask that you speak to each one of us, that you guide my words, that you guide the direction of this morning, that this is not my message, Father, this is your message to each one of us. So, Father, I pray that you bless this time, that you bless the reading of your Scripture and that you give us the wisdom for the understanding that you seek for us to have this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Alright, so First Peter chapter 4. I'll read through the whole thing here in the beginning. And then we'll kind of go from there. So, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. 
But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, for let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Now, growing up, Robin Hood was one of the dearest stories to my heart. When I was a young child, I loved the Disney version where there were foxes and bears and all those other animals. And as I got a little bit older and in the the late 80s, early 90s, Kevin Costner came out with a, a version, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Right? And as I was reading through this chapter and some of my previous notes, I came to the title that I was going to use um, before I had fleshed out many of the real, real details. I've titled today's study, Do You Yield? Immediately after kind of establishing that title, I was taken back to this memorable time or a memorable scene in that movie, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. In the scene, Robin of Loxley and Azim had fled from some of the Sheriff of Nottingham's men. They fled to the cursed Sherwood Forest and were hoping to disappear within the trees of the forest. They came to a large river. As they were looking for a way to cross, they encountered a large man by the name of John Little and his band of outlaws. Now you had no idea you were going to get Christopherson and Robin Hood this morning, huh? But John Little informed Robin that there was a tax for crossing the river. When Robin refused to pay, the two men began to fight. And for much of the fight, it seemed that the larger John was going to win and he was going to take Robin's heirloom that was around his neck. It was a golden cross, if you remember the movie. In fact, at the climax of their fight, this is exactly what happened. John sends Robin into the water uh, with a big wallop. If you, they were fighting with sticks and they were beating each other over the head and everything with it. When Robin falls in and he resurfaces, he realized that the cross necklace had been taken from his neck. So, so through a few more backs and forths and some wise shenanigans on Robin's part, he ends up getting the upper hand. The fight concludes when Robin repeatedly begins to dunk John and his entire body under the water and he begins to ask the question, do you yield? And he's doing this over and over and over again. So John, he finally says that he yields and Robin then instructs him to put his feet down and to stand up. It turns out that this final encounter happened in only about two feet of water And this was a piece of information that if John had known ahead of time, the outcome would have been significantly different. Because as I said, he was probably 6'8", 6'9", he was a very large guy, so a couple feet of water wouldn't have been an issue. But John Little was in a place of suffering and uncertainty. He found himself in a dire situation, and he was only focused on the immediate circumstance. He saw no way out of that circumstance, so finally he yielded to his adversary, He submitted. He stopped trying to save himself and he allowed Robin to help him. So in doing this, 
he would soon learn that his adversary was actually his friend. He was someone he could follow. He was someone that he willingly would yield to. See, as we break down 1 Peter 4, we must ask ourselves this question. Do I yield? Peter is going to lay out some very hard truths regarding suffering and our Christian life, but he's laying these truths out in the most encouraging way possible. The most Peter way possible, I would say. So as we go through this, think back to this little simple illustration of John Little and how he ultimately yielded. And we can hopefully draw some comparisons so it doesn't just seem like a clumsy illustration at the end of all of this. But First Peter is a letter of encouragement. At the end of the letter, this is what Peter actually says in, in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So his purpose was exhorting and testifying. It was to encourage and to build up and to testify of what God has done for us through Jesus. There are two central themes that run through this entire letter. Those themes would be suffering and glory. The key idea being that as Christ suffered, His suffering ultimately brought Him into His glory. So as we suffer with Christ, one day our suffering will be transformed also into His glory. We'll share that glory with Him. So while this is ultimately a future event, as we go through this chapter, we will see that there are glorious moments for us in the present as well. By the time of the writings of this letter, Peter had come a long way. He is Today we actually refer to him a lot of times as the Apostle of Hope. John, we will say sometimes, is the Apostle of Love. Peter became hopeful. He became optimistic. And we know from his early years that wasn't necessarily the way that he viewed things. So there was a transformation in his life and that's how he ministered to people in the later years of his life. So this hope is what we are going to see throughout his writings. Now there are many ways that we can break down 1 Peter chapter 4, but we're primarily going to focus on attitude. As Peter guides us through different issues, our attitude is ultimately what we must be willing to yield. So looking again at the first three verses here, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Here Peter is encouraging his audience to have a Christ-like attitude. This is an attitude of commitment through suffering, as well as a firm attitude towards sin. Peter opens up this chapter with the term, therefore. This is referring back to chapter 3. Obviously, we didn't go through that, but specifically he's looking at verse 18, where Peter was detailing Jesus' endurance through his own unjust sufferings. These were sufferings that he didn't deserve, yet he was resolved to overcome them. There's a few key phrases in these verses, the first being, since Christ suffered for us. So Peter is basically saying here that Jesus has done something very significant for us. If we're a believer, we can agree with that. The least we can do then is to be like-minded with Him as we navigate the rest of our lives. Jesus had to suffer because of sin. There was no other way around that. That was what He was destined to do. Another important phrase in these verses is arm yourselves also with the same mind. Peter is exhorting believers to equip themselves with the same attitude or the same mind of Jesus in the midst of his suffering. Arming ourselves is a military mindset. As we read this, our mind should immediately go to Ephesians 6, where Paul is discussing the armor of God. It's the same idea here, equipping or girding yourselves with those pieces of armor. Equipping or arming is an intentional 
process. It involves care and attention to detail or else it's useless. If you don't prepare and arm yourself correctly, then when you go to battle, the armor serves no purpose. The weapons, you won't have the correct things that you need. Everything would fall apart. You become vulnerable to your enemy. So it takes proper care and attention to detail in order for it to be beneficial. And that's the same thing here as we are arming ourselves with the same mind. Warren Risby says that our attitudes are weapons and weak or wrong attitudes will lead us to defeat. Are you feeling defeated today? We're nine days into a new year in the midst of all the crazy that's gone on the last several years. Some of us may be thinking that nine days in, it's already too much. It's still more of the same garbage. It's still stuff that we just can't bear. So the question then we have to ask ourselves is how is our attitude? How are we looking at these things? Hebrews 4.12 is a classic verse that focused on the power of God's Word, but it's also linked to this same idea. Um, In that verse it says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Greek word that Peter uses here in 1 Peter 4 for the same mind or the same attitude is used in Hebrews 4 for the word thoughts. So it's the same general idea. The idea is being that when we equip ourselves with the same mind, thoughts, or attitude as Jesus, we have an unwavering resolve to do God's will. Nothing will sway us as nothing would sway Christ. That's kind of the encouragement and the the challenge that Peter is giving us here. So this is the first thing that we must yield. If we ask ourselves that question, do I yield? The first thing that we must yield is our attitude toward being fully committed to doing God's will. The rest of verses 1 through 3 show us that we are also in need of yielding our attitude towards sin. And we need to also yield our time, especially as it relates to sin. So looking at those verses again, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Paul says it this way, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. As believers, we are no longer under the bondage of sin. The question then becomes, how much time are we going to waste dealing with sin? Sadly, many Christians in their heart of hearts think that they have not spent enough time doing the will of the ungodly. They want to experience more of the world before they make a full commitment to godliness. So many Christians, they've been saved through grace by faith. They're no longer bound to their sin, but they are willingly choosing to live in sin because they are not ready to fully give that up. And so that's one of the areas here that Peter is saying that we have wasted enough of our time. Prior to being a Christian, we didn't know any better. But now that we are believers and followers of Christ, our time should be fully devoted to doing the will of God. We shouldn't be getting caught up in the flesh. We have been freed from the bondage of sin, so we shouldn't be running back to our shackles. Ephesians 5, 15-17 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We are to be done with double-mindedness. If we are truly submitting to the Lord, we need to be done trying to also submit to our sin. 
We need to release our sin. We need to run from our sin. And we need to fully embrace following the will of God. So we're supposed to stop remembering the pleasure associated with our sin. And we sometimes will will remember that pleasure and we will forget the bondage that that sin brings. Indeed, or excuse me, instead, we are to remember who we were before Christ. We should remember that our sin helped crucify Christ. And we should remember the damage and destruction that our sin caused, either to us or to other people. We shouldn't be focused on the pleasure that came with it, that temporary pleasure that many sins offer. We need to be focused on and remember the bondage and the destruction so we don't run towards it, we run away from it. There must be a clean break between the life of an unbe- or the life of an unbeliever that is dead in their sin and the life of a believer that is alive in Christ. If you have an unbeliever and a believer standing side by side and there's no difference in the way that they're living your, their lives, someone's doing it wrong. So, the question we then ask is do we yield our attitude towards sin and do we yield our time to Christ? Verse 4 says, In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So verse 4 is highlighting the chasm that separates the believer and the unbeliever. Once someone has renewed their mind by aligning it with Christ, they no longer make sense to those that are still living their former lifestyle. The unsaved cannot understand the radical change that has happened in the believer's life. They cannot understand the differences in behavior and attitude. Many times, the life of a Christian begins to convict somebody who is not ready for that conviction, so this causes division. This is part of the cost of becoming a follower of Christ. Those that were our friends or even our family, in a very real and literal sense, they can and will become our enemies. This is where persecution can get very, very real very, very quick. And this is why I think sometimes we tend to cling to some of the bondage of our sin because we're unwilling to challenge some of those relationships that we care about. So there's a phrase here, speaking evil of you. These were people that cared about us. The ones that are speaking evil were those that were close to us. They were our friends. They were our family. Now they are literally heaping abuse upon us. Maybe you're dealing with that type of persecution today. Maybe you have family or friends that you've been at odds with. Maybe for days, weeks, months, or even decades. This is something that we need to yield to God. We need to give Him those relationships. This persecution can actually provide us with opportunities. We need to remember that what our friends and family members need, we actually have because God has given it to us. So our encounters with them are important to them, usually far more important to them than they would be to us, because we may have that opportunity to share the gospel. We may have that opportunity to speak truth into their life. Peter reminds us that everyone is going to give an account of their lives. This will be a very different account or process for the believer and for the unbeliever. So this is where we can take a a brief sidebar here as we're looking at these verses. See, believers are destined for the judgment seat of Christ, while unbelievers are destined for the great white throne judgment. Two different events two different times. Second Corinthians five ten sheds a little light. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
See, this judgment seat here in 2 Corinthians 5, this is only for believers, and it is focused on our inheritance, not based on our salvation. The great white throne judgment will take place a thousand years later, and it will condemn the unsaved. It is focused on salvation or the lack of salvation. So we can see a significant difference here. But when Peter says that we're all going to be before God and giving an account, this is what he's talking about. Specifically for believers, it will be an account of how we spent our time here on earth. Verse 6 is emphasizing this. Those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ have had the penalty for our sin paid on the cross. Our physical death leads to eternal life. Death does not initiate our sentence. Death initiates eternal life. To be absent from the body is to be present from or present with Christ if we are a believer. So coming back to our main idea here in verses 4 through 6, we're shown another area of our lives that we must be willing to yield. Our relationship with unbelievers. These relationships will bring persecution and difficulties, but they will also bring opportunity. We must be willing to seize those opportunities even when it is difficult. We must live so as to give an account, knowing that each opportunity brings with it the potential of heavenly inheritance or the heartbreak of a missed opportunity. See, I think when we are at that judgment seat of Christ, not only will we give an account for the things that we did do, but we will also be shown those missed opportunities or the things that we didn't do. If we look at verse 7 now, but the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Verse 7 is a bit of a transition verse. It's going to emphasize that judgment is coming quickly. This will link back to verses 1 through 6. But it also begins looking forward to the next steps that we as believers should be taking. Some of the persecution and trials that we'll see in verses 8 through 11. These next steps start with our prayer life. See, in verse 7 it says, Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. The next thing that we then need to evaluate and potentially yield to God is our prayer life. And this may sound a little strange because yielding our prayers to God seems redundant since He is the one that we are praying to, but it comes back to the attitude surrounding our prayers. As we've already seen, we need to be living our life as if we are in the last days, as if there is a limited amount of time remaining before Jesus returns. The end times started when Jesus ascended to heaven. That event began the clock for when He would return. Peter has already stressed the urgency that we should live by, and now he is placing emphasis on how we should pray. He says, be serious and watchful. We should be paying attention to what is going on. We should be intentional about what we pray for and how we are praying. We should take biblical warnings seriously and understand that in order to fulfill God's will, we must be in communication with Him via prayer. Our prayer life is our direct line to God. And we need to make sure that that is aligned with His will and not our own will. We should be clear-minded and self-controlled as we approach God in prayer. First Peter 5.8, so the, the chapter after this, he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Be clear-minded and watchful. This is an instruction that we should receive. Our prayers, especially those that we pray in the midst of persecution, should be clear-minded and focused communication. If our prayer life is confused, it is because our mind is confused. We must have a clear mind and approach God in a clear, sober way. 
So one way to begin to bring clarity is to understand and adopt a kingdom perspective. Going back to what we discussed a couple minutes ago, our time on earth, if we are believers, is working toward our inheritance in God's kingdom. We can think of this time essentially as a boot camp for our kingdom time, for our eternal time in the kingdom of God. Our roles and our responsibilities in the coming kingdom are going to be defined by what we do here and now. Our roles and responsibilities in the coming kingdom are going to be defined by what we do here and now. If this starts to sink in, if this is the thing that really captivates our minds, it changes the way that we think, it changes the way that we behave, because we understand that everything that we are doing here and now carries an eternal significance with it. See, this should get us thinking. When we come to terms with this, our entire perspective should shift. When we pray, your kingdom come, we better understand the weight of that prayer. If you aren't about your father's business, you better not be praying for the kingdom to get here. Otherwise, you're going to be missing out. And again, I'm not talking about salvation. If you're a believer, you're part of the kingdom that is given to us and guaranteed. But if we are squandering our time here, not fulfilling our calling, we're missing out on kingdom opportunities and portions of our inheritance. So we must be kingdom-minded. We must have a kingdom perspective. If we have this correct perspective, our prayer life is going to be laser-focused. If we are thinking and praying correctly, then our life should also reflect that. Verse 8, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another, oops, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If we are close to the return of Jesus, we should be about our Father's business. Here, Peter is placing significant emphasis on loving one another. There are three important phrases in verse 8. The first one is, above all things. This places the greatest importance on love. Next, he says, fervent love. This form of love can be compared to an athlete perfecting their skills. Love is not an emotional feeling, but a dedication of will. It is a choice, and this choice includes treating others the way that God treats us. Because we are flawed humans, we will never meet God's standard, but through being devoted to Him and to others and living in the Spirit, we can demonstrate godly love to one another. And then that brings us to the third phrase, which is, one another. So first and foremost, this type of love is to be given to other believers. There are differences between how we love and interact with believers and non-believers. There is a clear priority in Scripture given to us that we are to take care of each other, believers, before taking care of the unbelievers or the world. That phrase, one another, occurs dozens of times. And when you go through and you study just that phrase, you see that there is a significance to how we treat other believers. David Guzik, in a somewhat playful way, says, if these are the last days, then it is important for us to love those we are going to spend eternity with. We need to get used to each other because we're going to be around each other forever. So we need to demonstrate that love and give, as imperfect as our version of it is, godly love to one another here on earth. So Peter goes on in verse 8 to quote Proverbs 10.12, 
both the proverb and this verse here in First uh, Peter have been misquoted and misapplied countless times, mainly by being applied to relationships outside of the church. We are to love everybody with a Christ-like love, but how that is applied can look different in these different contexts. Peter is not saying that our love condones sin. This is often what people outside of the church expect. They instead, or they think that because we love, we should look the other way. We should embrace them because of their sin. We should accept them regardless of their sin. They don't fully understand that that is the antithesis of love. That because we love, we must interact and deal with sin. So see, instead, love actually covers sin. We help our brothers and sisters in Christ through their sin. We don't sweep it under the rug. We don't pretend it isn't there. We don't say it's okay. We work through it with each other. And we don't spread it through rumors. Even rumors that are presented as well-meaning prayers. You guys ever experienced that? Someone's talking gossip about you, but they're doing it in a prayer request. So it's okay? It's not okay. But we work through it with them. We deal with our sin with one another. Believers should be bearing and sharing each other's burdens. Galatians 6 one says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. And in James 5.19-20, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We are to work through our struggles together. Through godly love. Verses 9-11 through 11 are the application then of loving one another, or loving other believers. Verse 9, it says, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift. Minister to it one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever Amen. Verse 9. This is a tough one. People are difficult. Christians can be really whiny. We get on each other's nerves. This is why Peter includes without grumbling. Because he knows that we're going to want to grumble. He knows that some of us, we think our spiritual gift is grumbling. But being hospitable even if it comes natural or is one of your spiritual gifts, can become costly. It can become burdensome. And it can be irritating. But we are supposed to do it without grumbling. And the only way this works is by keeping the right perspective and the right attitude. An attitude of love in the same way that God loves us. And in, um, Here's an interesting side note. That in his letters to Timothy and Titus, Paul emphasizes hospitality as one of the qualifications to ministry. And to which I say, ministry is hard. Because we have to deal with people. A lot of pastors will joke that the ministry would be great if it didn't have all these people. right? Ministry is hard because we have to deal with one another. And we have to do it without grumbling. So in verse 10, Peter again uses this phrase, one another. Reminding us that our spiritual gifts are primarily for the edification of one another. The church. These are gifts that are primarily focused on the... uh, Excuse me. There are gifts that are primarily focused on the unbeliever. But for the most part, our spiritual gifts are tools for building up and equipping the saints in order to then support one another in our interactions with the unbelieving world. Christian love. The love mentioned in verse 8 must result in serving one another. We are all given at least one spiritual gift, something that is not a natural talent, but that manifests itself through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. These spiritual gifts, 
must bring God glory through the building up of His church. Not using your gifts in this manner is defrauding the body of Christ. See, when we are not in fellowship with others, and we are not serving others, we are literally taking away blessings from those people that they should be receiving from us. This is one of the simplest arguments for somebody that says they don't need to go to church when they're saved. They don't like church. They don't like the the hypocrisy. They don't like whatever the reason is that they give. You probably have come across some of these people that are believers that just don't go to church. Well, they have spiritual gifts that they've been gifted with. And by not being in fellowship with other believers, they're not using those gifts to edify the body. They're not using those gifts to give glory to God. And by not doing that, they're robbing those people that they should be in fellowship with of those blessings. So it isn't okay that we just sit on the sidelines and we're not using the gifts that God has given us. Not only are we robbing others of those blessings, but we are robbing them of God's grace. His grace manifests itself to His church as we exercise our spiritual gifts. His grace here is called the manifold grace of God. Manifold meaning it is varied. It is widely, has a wide variety because it is manifested in many different ways through many different people demonstrating many different gifts. God's grace comes upon us in a multitude of ways. And He uses us in the gifts that He's equipped us with through His Holy Spirit to give that grace to us. Paul stresses the importance of being good stewards with what God has given us, especially in the context of our giftings and God's grace. He says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. If we are bad stewards of God's grace, then it was given to us in vain. Instead of passing through us to others, we are essentially blocking God's grace and keeping it for ourselves. We're not allowing it to flow the way that God intended it to. See, the idea of stewardship is not one to take lightly. This goes back to the kingdom perspective that we discussed earlier. Our words and our actions should be glorifying God and they should all be kingdom-oriented. If we aren't glorifying God or furthering the kingdom, we aren't being good stewards. We end up wasting God's grace. We end up wasting our gifts. Our relationships get wasted. Our resources and our time are all wasted if we are not doing what God has called us to do. So verses 8 through 11 bring with them some evaluative questions. How are we doing Yielding our relationships to God. What about our giftings? What about our time? We go back to that one. Are we yielding those things to God as well? Verse 12, we start to see another transition here. The context is the same. So we're still talking about suffering. We're still talking about glory and Christ's return. But Peter seems here to be ramping it up a little. So in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part, He is glorified. So there's some historical context here that we should include, just to, to give us a little bit better understanding. Peter calls the trials fiery. Now this could be purely metaphorical, because we see fire as a metaphor all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. So it could be purely metaphorical, but there was also a very literal sense in which this could be applied. Peter was writing his letters around the time when Nero was beginning uh, the persecution of Christians. Up until this point, 
persecution on the church had been primarily from Jewish sources. But now the Roman government was actually getting involved. Nero was extremely wicked. We know that if you've looked at uh, the, the temple destruction in AD 70 or any of the other things that he's done, he was an extremely wicked ruler. And I, you know, he sat around just coming up with more and more evil and heinous ways to, to deal with people. So some Christians were actually covered in pitch and used as living torches to light the imperial gardens at night. So he would take Christians that were basically tied to the stake, cover them in pitch, light them in fire or on fire, and then their body would be inflamed throughout the night and they would be positioned to light the gardens. So you could, I guess, walk through and see the gardens and all the the nasty burning bodies. But So Peter could possibly have been alluding to this practice thinking that it could start to spread beyond the boundaries of the imperial palace and into the greater Roman Empire. Either way, Peter understood that persecution was intensifying and he was reminding the believers that they shouldn't be surprised by this. The same is true for us today. Persecution should not be considered a strange thing. If we are dealing with persecution, we shouldn't be asking the question, oh, why me? Oh, what's going on? This is strange. Why is it happening to me and nobody else? See, if Satan is leaving you alone, you should be asking yourself why. Because if you're not impacting what he is trying to do, then Satan has no reason to impact you. And if you're not impacting what he's trying to do, then that means you're not kingdom focused means you're not doing what God's called you to do. Because if we're doing what God has called us to do, we're in direct opposition with what the enemy is trying to accomplish. And he is going to be playing an active part of your life. So persecution that comes from him, we should see it as a blessing. And that's what Peter's going to get to here. It is important to note that not all difficulties, though, in life are necessarily these fiery trials. There are some difficulties that are simply a part of human life and almost everybody is going to experience them. We all, apart from the rapture, are going to die. That's just part of the human experience. We all go through the aging process, which means achy joints and disease and ailments and you know things like that. Some of those things are just natural. They don't have a spiritual connotation to them necessarily. They're just part of our human experience that we all are going to have to deal with. And then unfortunately, there are some difficulties that we bring on ourselves because of disobedience and sin. So even though we're not captive to our sin, we know that the flesh will on occasion still win out and we will still have to deal with consequences of bad choices and bad actions. Peter mentioned these types of trials in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20, and again in verses, or chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. The fiery trial that, though that he's mentioning here in 1 Peter 4, 12, this comes because we are faithful to God and stand up for that which is right. It is because we bear the name of Christ that the, the lost world is attacking us. So this is an interesting thing to consider. Here with Peter, there was a time when he tried to convince Jesus to avoid the suffering on the cross. If you remember back to his ministry, or Jesus' ministry, and Peter is one of his disciples, and really just not understanding the whole process, not seeing the whole picture, and leading up to uh, Jesus being crucified, Peter recommended that he just kept avoiding and fleeing and running and that there was no need for, for him to be arrested and go to, you know, death that he talked about. Um, this led to Jesus obviously saying things like, get behind me, Satan, when he's talking to Peter and it led to lots of other rebukes and exhortations and, you know, Peter at some point down the line, finally getting it. But we see a very distinct contrast here. So in the past, Peter was saying, run from persecution, run from the suffering that you're supposed to uh, deal with and, and avoid it. And now in this letter, 
He's simply saying that we shouldn't expect anything different than suffering. If we are following Christ because He suffered, we should also expect that in our lives. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. It's John fifteen eighteen through 21 Jesus to the disciples. We suffer in fellowship with Jesus. This is to be expected. Not only should we expect it, but we should be honored to do it, and we should find joy when it happens. So sharing and suffering with Christ produces several benefits. We are given joy with Christ, or rejoicing with Christ. Philippians 3.10 says that we are in fellowship with Him when we are enduring suffering. Romans 8.7, we are being glorified with Him through our suffering. And then 2 Timothy 2.12 says that we will be reigning with Him because we suffer. So there are several benefits, spiritual benefits, to actually going through suffering with Christ. James 1.2-4, this is a Classic verse on this whole idea. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Suffering for the name of Jesus is a blessing. And that's what Peter is really driving home here. It reveals that we are actually following Christ. Our suffering is because we identify with Him. This is a privilege, not a penalty. When we are suffering with and for Christ, we should consider that a privilege. It's not because of a punishment. It's not because of a penalty. As we discussed earlier, the world hates Jesus. We cannot be loved by the world and remain true to Jesus. We cannot and should not expect the approval of those that are rejecting Christ. If we're seeking their approval, then we're probably not seeking His. There's no probably about it. There's one or the other. Their disapproval, when the world is showing us persecution, when it is showing us disapproval, we should be wearing that as a badge of honor. Because again, if they're paying attention to us, it means we're paying attention to God's calling and His will and His kingdom. In verse 15 and 16, Peter issues a slight warning here. You guys are doing good. We've just got four verses left. We're almost there. But verse 15, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So when we are going through a trial or are suffering, we need to make sure that it is not because of our own behaviors or our own actions. If it is, we need to repent. We need to bear the consequences. So whenever we start going through a trial or a persecution where we have something going on, that evaluation is where we start. Is this something that I've caused? Is there a sin that I need to repent of? Are these consequences of my actions? If it is, then repent and get right. And you know God will work you through the rest of whatever the outcome is. If it isn't, you say, no, you know what? I'm, I'm walking with the Lord. I've been in the Spirit. 
this is not a product of my own doing. This is an outside force. This is something that you can determine as being spiritual in nature. And again, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, through prayer, through being in the Word, you should be able to determine these types of things. At least a a partial origin of your persecution. So if we find ourselves going through something, and it isn't because of our own sin, and it isn't just part of life, then we should count our suffering as joy and we should not be ashamed of it. This, I think, would have been pretty interesting for Peter to write. If you think back, again, we're going back into into Peter's early days. I think back to the hours leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. As the persecution started, Peter fled. He was ashamed. He was scared. We know ultimately he denied Christ. And this is why we love Peter. Because he's real. Because he's honest. And because we see a change in his approach and the way that he lived his life. And that brings hope to us, at least to me, because I relate to Peter as a mess up. So hopefully I can then also relate to Peter as a pastor shepherding a flock. See, at this point, when Peter's writing this, there is no longer shame. There is no longer denial of Christ. And there is no shame in going through the ringer for Jesus' sake. Hebrews 2.11 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed of us. And He has every reason to be. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that the Father is not ashamed to be called our God. And He has every reason to be. But if they aren't ashamed of us, then how could we be ashamed in sharing in His suffering? Paul's words, you guys know this one, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. See, Paul understood that there was no shame in persecution. Peter understood that there is no shame in being persecuted for Christ. We must understand that it is not something to be ashamed of, but it is something that we should be proud and honored to carry. And that we are being blessed and we are growing through it. So before we move off of these verses, it's important to look back at the list of sinful actions. So notice that Peter lumps gossip or busybody into the same category as murderer and thief. That should signify a level of importance there to us. There is no place for gossip within the life of a believer. We could argue that there is actually more damage caused by gossip than by a murderer or a thief. So, some questions in this portion. Do you yield your persecution and suffering to Jesus? Do you give it to Him? See, this is an interesting question. And if we look back to the illustration of Robin Hood, when little John was potentially drowning, he was flailing his arms and his legs, he was distracted, he was unfocused and confused, he was unable to see the cause of his suffering or the solution to his suffering. It was only when he was willing to yield that those things began began to be clear. It's the same for us. When we are dealing with persecution, or or we are in the midst of suffering, if we haven't yielded, yielded these things to God, we are seeking solutions in the wrong place. Maybe we are missing what the real problem is. It's only through surrendering to Christ that we can begin to gain understanding or... And more often than not, I find this in my own life. We can be okay without understanding. Because we can then understand, you know, God, I don't understand what's going on, but I know that you do. And you can give it to Him. So are we yielding our persecutions? Are we yielding our suffering to Christ? Or are we trying to control that? Is this an area of our lives that's been yielded to Jesus? Verse 17. 
For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. As believers, our persecutions filter through the Father. They are refining processes that teach discipline and purify our lives. Hebrews 12.7 says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? God disciplines us towards obedience. When we go through trials or tribulations of any sort, it is important for us to remember that there is never any punishment associated with our persecution. God is not punishing His children. He's purifying us. David Guzik says, For the Christian, the issue of punishment was settled once and for all at the cross, where Jesus endured all the punishment the Christian could ever face from God. For us, it's not about punishment. It's about purification. It's about refining. Peter concludes this chapter with a final word of encouragement. We should commit ourselves to our faithful Creator. Warner Wiersbe says, again, in relation to this kingdom perspective that we were talking about, if we really have hope and believe that Jesus is coming again, then we will obey His Word and start laying up treasures and glory in heaven. Unsaved people have a present that is controlled by their past. But Christians have a present that is controlled by the future. In our very serving, we are committing ourselves to God and making investments for the future. For the believer, what we endure in this life is as bad as it's ever going to get. You realize that? What you deal with here is as bad as your life is ever going to be. Some of us got it pretty good. But when we get to heaven, it's going to be even better. But for the unsaved, this is as good as life is ever going to get. Can you imagine this being it and not having something better to look forward to? Some of us have it pretty miserable, and especially the unbelievers. So, the question, do you yield? Robin Hood's there dunking your head under the water over and over again. We went through a lot of Scripture, and I hope that this line of thought stayed with you as we examined 1 Peter 4. Do you yield? For most of us in the room, the question of submission is one of lifestyle. The questions that I asked are relatable. We need to examine our attitudes, our behaviors, how we spend our time. We need to evaluate our relationships and our giftings. Everything that is part of us, we run through the filter of, is it honoring God? Is it kingdom-focused? And if it isn't, we have to correct course. But there could be some that the question regarding surrender is much more basic. It isn't about lifestyle. It's simply about life. See, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you can't surrender your lifestyle to Him. You must first surrender your life to Him. The Bible tells us that in order to be saved from our sins, we must believe the Gospel and confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. The gospel is a simple, clear message. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare, declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 
Romans 10.9, Paul says that if we confess, or if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The Gospel is a simple message. Jesus paid the price for all sin by dying on the cross. He defeated sin and death by being raised on the third day. And He offers eternal life to all who believe in Him. But for the rest of us, those that have already put our faith and trust in Christ, what are we doing? It's 2022. Time is short. Jesus is either returning or He's calling us home. One of those things is happening. and For some of us, it may happen sooner than we think. So are we living with a kingdom perspective? Do you yield every aspect of your life to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of your faith? Or are you holding something back, thinking you can do it better? Whatever you are holding on to, surrender it to Jesus today. As Peter said, the end is approaching and we have all wasted so much time. We need to begin living for Christ today. Think back to the very beginning when I went through Ephesians 5. Redeem the time because the days are evil. The time we have now, we don't get it back. Time is a a finite resource. It's gone, it's gone. The second that I just said, I never get back. We have to redeem our time here and now, today, and be focused on the kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, first and foremost, for what Jesus did for us. That you loved us enough to send your son, that he loved us enough to take our place, to bear our punishment so that we are not punished. Father, I ask that you press it into each one of our hearts that time is short. Let our live let our, us live our lives with urgency. But not urgency for urgency's sake, urgency for the kingdom's sake. Understanding that you are returning and we want to be about your business. We don't want to squander your gifts or your calling or the time you've given us. Father, we want to give you everything that we have. Because it's only fitting because you gave us everything that you have. So Father, I pray that you give us opportunity this week to evaluate our lives, to ask ourselves this question, do we yield to you everything that you've given? Father, I pray for opportunity for us to continue to use our gifts to minister to one another. I pray for opportunity, Father, as we go through this, we just we simply see that we are to love you first and we are to love others. It's not a difficult calling that you've given us. So we pray that you give us ways to apply that to our lives. You reignite the fire that may be dwindling in some of our hearts. That you meet each one of us where we are, Father, and you draw us closer to you and you strengthen that relationship that we have with you. Father, we give you all glory, all honor, and all praise. It's in your name I pray. Amen.